Devoncast. From Radio X. This is the Devoncast, the regular podcast looking at local and regional issues in Devon. The politics, the people and how decisions here affect how we live, work and enjoy our county. I'm Guy Henderson. I'm Alison Stevenson. And I'm Bradley Gerrard. And we're joined in the studio by Will Goddard. Hi, Will. Hi, everyone. Will is joining the team and will be joining the podcast very soon, but we haven't quite got enough microphones and headphones to go around this week, Will. So uh, next time, we'll get you on the pod. In this edition of Devon's number one local politics podcast, we look at issues affecting all corners of the county. We've been here, there and everywhere in the past few days, and I've even had a chat with the Archbishop of Canterbury. We'll bring you that, plus the lowdown on Devon's devolution, a look at the autumn statement, homelessness on the streets of Plymouth, and much, much more. Plus, we'll be talking about our own encounters with famous people, prompted by bumping into the Archbishop of Canterbury in Torquay. So, uh, as is only right and proper, let's begin with him. Devoncast from Radio X. Uh, the most reverend Justin Welby, he was at Torquay for Armistice Day and took part in a service at the Cenotaph on the seafront. He talked to local dignitaries and school children and then led a walk across the Harbour Bridge to the point on the quayside where hundreds of troops embarked on landing craft to head off uh, across the horizon for the D-Day beaches in Normandy in 1944. Have you guys have been down on Torquay Harbour side and have you seen that in the quayside there's some Morse code set into the floor? No. And everybody looks at it and says, I wonder what that says. And a little spoiler, it says vanishing point because mm-hmm. it points towards the horizon. Where the, uh, where the troops went, so it says vanishing point. There you go, you can drop that into conversation next time <laughs> you're down there. Uh, but the Archbishop started the day in St Mary Church, leading a service at the church where in 1943 a German aircraft dropped a bomb which killed 21 children and three Sunday school teachers, uh, an incident that's never forgotten in Torquay. The Archbishop hadn't known about the St Mary Church incident before, but he drew parallels between that and the current horrors at Gaza. I asked him about the start to his day. Uh, you were at St Mary Church this morning. It was a very poignant place to be on a weekend like this. It, I didn't know its history, and I, after the service, a woman whose sister had been killed in the bombing raid, which is commemorated there, came and talked to me. And poignant, yes, it's more than poignant. It was We were both in tears, this thinking about that what happened there, the tip and run raid that killed 21 children and three adults. And it's a reminder that war is made up of individual tragedies, not just huge numbers. And your message today has been very much about unity, about community, about working together. It seems that the country is divided at the moment. Can we we fix it? Oh, yes. No question. Um, And we're much less divided than we were a few years back. And we've overcome COVID and great tests. And yes, we're divided, but we've seen that we come together. And on Remembrance Day, we come together. And uh, under God, we are brought together with all our differences and our diversity. And in Christ, we are better together than we are separate. And that was the heart of my message today. And children from Tor Primary School have taken part today. How important is it to keep spreading the message through the generations on Remembrance Weekend? Oh, it's absolutely indispensable. Um, Society and community and nations are built on hope for the future, concern and love for each other in the present, and memory of both triumph and disaster in the past. Remembrance matters. Devon's been quite kind to you. Have you enjoyed your... Uh, oh, I'm enjoying, my, I'm enjoying myself completely. It's absolutely spectacular. 
That was the Archbishop of Canterbury talking to me about how moving he found his time at St Mary Church and how we can fix a divided country. When I said to him, can we fix it, I was just hoping he was going to say, yes, we can. And there you go. <laughs> Which brings us by a roundabout route to talking about the famous people we've interviewed down the years. Brad, kick us off. Yeah, well, guys, having a think about this, and um, unfortunately I wasn't working in Exeter during the football club's Michael Jackson and Yuri Geller days, or else they might top my list. Um, I'd say the most famous person I've interviewed probably uh, one of the FTSE 100 chief executives like Carolyn McCall, who ran EasyJet at the time, or... Um, Michael O'Leary from Ryanair. People know him. He often yeah, says yeah. some things that yeah. catch, catch attention. Um, and in my student journalism days, I had the pleasure of interviewing Chris Grayling, who was in the Shadow Transport Minister. Okay. Um, but yeah. the most famous person I've ever seen in person is John Travolta, who was giving a presentation at an Architectural Digest um, conference in Washington when I was there. So, yeah, he's the most famous person I've seen, but I wasn't quick enough to get a question in with him. That set the bar pretty high for the rest of the podcast, though. We'll have to go some to beat that. Thanks, Brad. Um, still to come, we will talk about Edgingswell Station at Torquay. We'll talk about homelessness on the streets of Plymouth, the continuing campaign uh, around Seton Hospital, an anniversary at the Dartmoor Line and returning a sacred relic uh, back to where it belongs. But first, uh, let's talk devolution and levelling up. Who Hands up, who understands what devolution means for Devon? Yeah, seeing as you're listening and not watching us, uh, no hands went up in the studio then. It's a really complicated topic, isn't it? We've been wrestling with that this week. Uh, we know the government's given the go-ahead for the creation of what's going to be known as a combined county authority for Devon and Torbay. It'll have devolved powers and a seat quite near the top table when it comes to getting cash from the government. I, I did a football analogy in a piece I wrote yesterday. Ali, you won't be surprised about that because the conversation with me inevitably ends up with football at it some does, point or yeah. another. That's how you explain everything. <laughs> but if you, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> if you think of the district councils um, like Teambridge, South Hams, Torridge, East Devon uh, and Exeter City Council as being League Two, there's no, no disrespect to them, of course, but think of them as being League Two. In League One at the moment would be the unitary councils of Torbay and Plymouth uh, and Devon County Council. But what I'm thinking is that as Torbay and Devon join up into this combined county authority, that promotes them then into the championship where they'll have they'll be a little bit closer to the sun. They'll be a little bit closer to, to the power in the Premier League are the mayor led the huge authorities, the Greater Manchesters, the South Yorkshires, etc., because the combined Devon won't have an elected mayor. But that was my football analogy. But uh, some, some say this is going to be fantastic for Devon. Others are less keen, notably Plymouth City Council, which has taken a look at the proposals and decided it wants no part of it, despite years of preparations. Plymouth says it will end up losing power and influence, but uh, Torbay and Devon are somewhat keener. Uh, here's Torbay Council leader David Thomas. Level, 
but it's about having control of that adult education budget, that skills agenda, being able to spend that money that was previously spent from uh, national governments basically being told we're going to do this, that or the other. That money is being uh, devolved to this new authority which sits within Torbay and Devon and it will be the members sitting on that new authority that will be able to directly uh, allocate that money into those particular projects at a really, really local level. And, and that will be the same also for transport. It'll help, help us drive that uh, our net zero and climate change activities. I was having mouse trouble there, as you may have noticed. Uh, sorry for crashing those two clips together, but uh, David Thomas was talking there um, about whether the names will change, whether there'll be any change in the identity of Torbay Council. Uh, and I called it a merger on the Radio X News on the day it was announced, uh, and it isn't. Uh, here's David Thomas once again, uh, if I can get the mouse to click in the right place. It's certainly not a merger because the reality is both councils stay exactly as they are as Torbay Council will still function as the council as it is. Devon County Council will operate as a county council exactly as it is. All the district councils around Devon, they all stay. There's no change there. So it's definitely, it's definitely not a merger. It is an embellishment of the partnership that we currently have. And it's part of this devolution deal. Well, for Plymouth, it's been disappointing both for the City Council, who say the deal would be a step backwards for them, um, that they'd be relinquishing power with no promise of extra resources. And for the business community, they expect opportunity to come from it, so they're quite disappointed that Plymouth has pulled out. Plymouth's a big player and adept at attracting funds with millions of investment being ploughed into the city, but it's holding out for a better deal to come. Here's City Council leader Tudor Evans to tell us why he doesn't want to be part of the deal that's on the table at the moment. Devolution is supposed to be about taking powers from Westminster and giving them to local areas. But the Department for Transport wanted us not to get more power, but to depower us, to, to give up the power that we currently got. And I, I can't see how that's devolution. That's moving power and influence in the wrong direction. So we would cease to be masters of our own destiny mm -hmm. for the first time in 25 years since we became a unitary authority. Mm -hmm. And that's a backward step as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Now, if they were going to you know, make it so that we had access to billions of pounds or something like they have done in other areas of the country, that's a different question. But that wasn't the question that was before us at the moment. The mm. question was, is, would you like to give your powers up mm. and get nothing and join this gang or not? So, mm. not, thanks. So really, you'd get nothing for it? Why would anyone agree to that then? Well, I don't know. And that's a question you'd ask. You'd have to ask the others who were in the gang. But that's a matter for them. Mm. They may believe that there's jam tomorrow on the way, and that's fine. But I couldn't see any jam. Well, that's the council's take, but it hasn't gone down well with businesses. Chief Executive of the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, Stuart Alpha, tells us why. Well, it's profoundly disappointing that Plymouth has pulled out of the devolution deal. It can't be in the best interests of wider Devon that it doesn't have one of the major economic powerhouses within it. Whilst we understand the reasons that 
the councillors have given, and we appreciate the efforts they've gone to to come to a deal, it is disappointing and it does concern business uh, as to what opportunities may be missed. While the government has made it clear that there is currently no new money on the table, they have also made it clear that this is the mechanism by which money will arrive. We believe that as businesses who don't recognise boundaries uh, and borders, that um, it can only be better to have a joined up strategic approach for the county. However, we will, of course, work with whatever structure we have. Business will overcome whatever difficulties are placed in front of them. So while it is disappointing that Plymouth isn't part of the uh, Greater Devon Devolution Deal, uh, we will work with all the local authorities to get the best outcome we can. Um, I suspect the local authorities were planning for all eventualities. I don't think they only planned for a deal to be done. I think they planned for what happens if there's no deal, a full deal or a partial deal. And of course, we've ended up with a partial deal. Business will be keen to see what the real figures are. What are the benefits coming out of this? Where is the money? What, what will it go to before it makes a decision? Of course, the door isn't closed. And we hope that the councils will find a way to work together in the future. And, and of course, in the meantime, just because there isn't a combined authority doesn't mean they're not working together. They already work together on a lot of things. And so I'm particularly keen that that continues and hopefully will lead to perhaps Plymouth coming into the fold of a combined authority in due course. So it's no deal for Plymouth right now, but there's something that did put a smile back on the face of Tudor Evans when news came in that the city was going to get levelling up cash from the government. The new round of funding is for projects being drawn from previously unsuccessful bids and Plymouth's waterfront and port projects will benefit to the tune of £20 million. Councillor Evans says that Plymouth had an has an extraordinary waterfront and this money would help create opportunities for young people to learn skills that will see them as great jobs in the marine economy. So let's watch this space. Interesting times, very interesting times coming up for Torbay, Plymouth, Devon, the whole of the county. In fact, still to come on the Devoncast this week, we talk about homelessness in Plymouth. We talk about the campaign to save that wing of Seton Hospital, the second anniversary of the Dartmoor line. All of that to come, but uh, the autumn statement is dominating the headlines today as we record. Brad, you've been taking a look at this. Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to be look, uh, talking about the autumn statement. We are in a curious situation, as you allude to there, Guy, whereby as we are speaking now, Jeremy Hunt is addressing the nation. Um, but we thought that it would be useful for listeners who are tuning into our podcast to sort of hear what politicians around Devon had hoped to hear from the autumn statement and they can compare it with what transpires. Um, essentially, um, as ever, finances play a big part in the concerns of politicians um, with Devon County councillors of every political persuasion worried about funding in some form or another. Um, more support for children's and adult social care was called for by some, while others feared that political points could be sought by cutting the benefits bill, something which some councillors felt would be a retrograde step given the ongoing cost of living crisis. Um, Devon County Council's uh, leader of the Labour Party, Carol Whitton, shared her thoughts. Is on, um, what the Chancellor might do to, uh, to, to stimulate economic growth and um, uh, what might be um, in there in terms of benefit reduction, uh, which, of course, from my perspective, would, and I think of many of my colleagues, would be of great concern because the cost of living has had a, 
a huge impact um, within our area. There, you know, quite a large proportion of our population have undoubtedly been struggling. Um, over recent years, we've seen increased use of food banks by people who um, might never previously have seen themselves as likely to need that extra help, people in work, rather than um, people not in work. So I think um, that those would be the main areas that I'd be looking out for. Um, and so while um, Councillor Whitton agreed the economy needed to be stimulated, she hoped that it would be done in a way that would benefit the many and not the few. Stimulating the economy, I think there would be cross-party agreement that that is important, it needs to be done. But of course it's how you do it that matters. And um, in Devon, uh, I think we'd be my view would be it's not going to help our local economy if there are measures um, that, that help the large national companies. We'd be looking for more support and help for the small and medium-sized enterprises, to the hospitality industry, and yes, for, for, for house, house building particularly um, uh, uh, social housing. That would be the way I'd like to see the economy stimulated. Um, the Liberal, Liberal Democrat MP for Tiverton and Honiton, Richard Ford, also raised concerns about potential tax giveaways that he suggested could be a bit of a red herring. And while Mr Ford wasn't expecting any big health-related announcements in the autumn statement, he said the Liberal Democrats were pushing for a carer's minimum wage, which would see carers paid an additional £2 per hour on top of the existing uh, minimum wage. Some local examples. We would like to see um, 
a, a, a carer's minimum wage, which would pay local carers an additional £2 per annum for those people who work in care homes and in residential settings. People who work in social care, we think, should be getting uh, a carer's minimum wage of an additional £2 per hour. And that would help to fill vacancies and it would ensure that people get the care they need. And if we can get more people working in social care, there are so many vacancies in social care, if we can get more people in there, that enables beds to to, to, to be freed up in hospitals. And so we won't see the the uh, the, the, the queues of ambulances that, that we saw last winter uh, stacking up outside of the model for hospitals because people couldn't be released from beds in, in our acute hospitals. And in terms of local issues, Mr Ford hoped for regions such as the South West to receive more government funding after he recently bemoaned how few projects in the South West um, successfully secured levelling up funding. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? It's going to be, even as we speak, This is uh, the autumn statement is being delivered. It um, is, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And then, as um, Richard Ford says there, you know, the the potential for the government to give some tax giveaways is is potentially good and interesting and a vote winner yeah. but all these um all these uh, things are very complex and often when the government gives you something it's probably taking it away from somewhere else it's all got to be paid for hasn't it, it somewhere does. down the line somewhere down the line thank you very much still to come on the Devoncast, we'll uh, we'll look at homelessness in plymouth the battle for seaton hospital the birthday for the dartmoor line and returning a sacred headdress back to where it belongs. But first, Ali, you're on the spot now. Famous person. Oh, well, famous people. West Devon and Tavistock is, is teeming with famous people, isn't it? Oh, well, there are a lot of famous people there. A lot of them hide away, though, so we don't always see them. We don't always interview them. Um, it was quite interesting when Anne Widdicombe came to Tavistock um, one time and she was uh, signing her latest book, um, but we ended up talking about Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> well, as you do. Yeah. As you do, but actually I was quite pleased because she's quite a formidable woman and and uh, yeah. I have to say, I was probably a little bit scared. So uh, we, we had a bit of common ground there. So we, we could talk about that. Um, I, I did arts and entertainment for quite a long time. So I spoke to some of the, you know, the sort of the stars that were, were around at the time. And uh, Jason Donovan was probably the most famous person I've interviewed. Is he, is he a nice chap? <clears throat> he is an absolutely lovely chap. Real family man, really down to earth. So, yeah, put me at my ease fairly quickly. So that was that was really good. It's always good to know, isn't it, that famous people, uh, they turn out to be nice. Yes. You know, when, you, when somebody says, I've just met so-and-so and they yes. were awful, you know, I, don't, I like them on TV. Yeah. But Jason Donovan's good. Jason Donovan's good. And uh, Brian Connolly, I have to say, he was another one who it felt like you're talking to your brother or your dad or something. <laughs> that was great. Um, one of my favourite people I met was Bill Oddie. Um, and um, people would often say, "Oh, he was in the goodies," but I, I always know him as a, you know, as a sort of bird lover and a yeah. conservationist. And he certainly, when I met him, he was at Roadford Lake opening a, a bird hide there, um, and he was, you know, just as you'd imagine him. And he was the first presenter of Spring Watch, which you know now is is sort of head headed by Chris Packham and Michaela Strachan. But back in the day, it was Bill Oddie, and he's a lovely man. I'm really happy to hear that. Good stuff. <laughs> Who wants to hear a local MP proving the old adage that it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good? Now, good show of hands in the in the studio. As you can't see us, all the hands went up in the studio there. Uh, this is uh, Torbay MP Kevin Foster using one of his coveted slots in Prime Minister's Question Times to ask if the HS2 debacle, that's our description, not his, uh, might actually bring some good for Devon. Proposals for a new rail station at Edgingswell have been looked forward to for a decade, but a final funding gap 
exists. Will some of the funds released by the decision to scrap further phases of HS2 be used to resolve this? can assure my uh, honourable friend that our decision on HS2 means every region of the country will now receive more transport investment than it would have done before, including the South West. Uh, I'm pleased that funding is happening to protect the vital rail link between Exeter and Plymouth. There will be a £2.8 billion road resurfacing fund and his constituents in the South West will continue to benefit from the £2 bus fare until the end of next year. I know that we have previously provided almost £8 million to progress the station that he mentions and I'll reassure him that the Rail Minister will have heard his representations and continue to update him on the progress that they're making. There you go, that's Kevin Foster making the most of an opportunity to speak at PMQs. Serious subject now, homelessness. Ali, you've been looking at the, some of the homelessness problems in Plymouth. Yes, uh, as we know, homelessness is, is a massive problem across the country um, with more people than ever before finding themselves without a home. Um, through various reasons like the cost of living crisis, family breakdowns and a lack of affordable and rental properties. In Plymouth, uh, the picture is pretty bleak with 4,000 new homes and 100 million needed to sort out the issue. Social housing stock is low in the city and over the past 18 months, rents in the private sector have risen significantly at a time when the household incomes are declining. The amount of people waiting for a home in Plymouth has risen by 50% in the last 18 months and now stands at 12,000. The council's cabinet member for housing, council so Chris Pemberthy explains more. Often people think homelessness are rough sleepers, and rough sleepers are the very tip of an iceberg of a housing crisis. Increasingly today we're seeing people in work, families because of no fault of their own becoming homeless. Either their landlords put the rents up to levels they can't afford, take Section 21 eviction notices or relationship breakdown, either violent or non-violent. So people like you and I um, facing homelessness very quickly, who are not used to being in the system, who don't understand the way it works, and suddenly find themselves confronted with a, a whole way of life and people that they never thought they'd experience. And even there, beyond that, there are the people who are staying with family and with friends who are trying to make it work, um, who are on the housing waiting list because they desperately need accommodation. Um, and. So the housing crisis is much, much bigger than quite often we think when we think people sleeping in a doorway. In terms of our budget, um, we've gone five years ago £800,000 on bed and breakfast accommodation to in the region of £6 million this year. And the housing waiting list has gone in the last 18 months to two years from 8000 to 12000 So. We're spending a lot more on bed and breakfast and there's lots more people needing affordable housing. Um, and to tackle both of those, we need lots of new affordable housing um, built in the city to provide for the families and people who already need it. And to do that is expensive. It costs money to build houses. It takes time. And until we've got those houses, we need temporary solutions. It costs money to put those in as well. We know that realistically to deal with temporary accommodation in the next few years, if we had a £40 million capital programme, we could spend it very easily. And, and we know that um, if we were able to put more money into affordable housing, some of the stalled sites in the city could very easily come forward and in two or three years' time be giving more affordable housing. But each of those you know, um, costs money. The, there were eight or nine new houses going on the old North Prospect Library site. The council's just had to put in £12,000 per house to make them viable. 
that's money straight out of us to make those homes available. Um, and that's after all the other grants and we let the, the ground go for a pound. You just begin to add it up and the numbers quickly multiply. But we need 4,000 homes to meet the, the needs of people in priority need on the housing waiting list. 4,000 homes will cost millions and millions of pounds to build. The council says there's up to 100, sometimes more, chasing every available private rented property in the city and it's getting worse as many landlords are ex exiting the market or converting to Airbnbs or student accommodation. Here's Chris again. We've been talking to landlords and agents and they find that when it comes to letting properties now, some of them just close the list at 150 and then they will almost take out of the hat, they'll do a quick sift, anyone who's eligible, they'll almost pluck them out of the hat They'll show people round. We had one agent say they showed five people round. They offered it to one. And on her way back in her car to the office, someone else rang and offered to pay six months in cash in advance at a higher rent to try and get the property. And, you know, it is ridiculous. Similarly, for affordable housing, the waiting list is such that every single property now has multiple people bidding on it. Everyone is desperately trying to get a home and people, if they get offered something, they're taking it because they know there's nothing else around. Um, it is so, so difficult for people in, in both sectors and that, you know, all of that system from, from the rough sleeper right through to families denied choice, it, it's heartbreaking. And every time you meet someone and you hear their story, it's heartbreaking and there's not enough that we can do either as a council or personally um, and it makes me want to do more and you know I, I can't magic homes yeah. I can't I can't solve people's problems I can't pay the bills yeah. but the stories out there aren't stories of people who are wasting money they're not stories of people who bought it on themselves they are heart-wrenching stories of the impact of a lot of policy at the moment especially the way government policy is working it's making it really difficult for ordinary people just to lead their lives. So what would be the single thing that you would like to see happen as soon as possible? Well, the thing we're asking at the moment for government is to change the local housing allowance. So there are 23,000 households in the city on universal credit. Less than 6,000 of those are out of work. Everyone else is in work. As part of their universal credit, the government pays them money towards the housing. That hasn't gone up in the last three years. It's now less than it costs to rent a property anywhere in the city. If that rose, it would actually mean people could still afford properties, it would make it easier for letters. It would also make it easier for registered providers to build new housing because the money they can borrow against the income of a house is set on the local housing allowance. That 15% difference across their rental stock is the difference between them being able to build or not build. So that one action by government would make a real difference. But we would also ask that they give us a long-term settlement to deal with homelessness in order that we can tackle some of these issues, um, work with people to solve the problems and to solve the issues, to deal with the crises that have led to homelessness in order that people are able to sustain a home and play a valuable part in society. Everyone I've spoken to in the homelessness system talks about the fact they want to work, they want to contribute, and what's happening to them is stopping them doing that. So sort out the LHA and give us longer-term funding settlements. We'd be able to do an enormous amount with that. We'd then come back with more asks, but those two would be fundamental. 
That was Chris Penberthy, the uh, Cabinet Member at Plymouth City Council for Housing. Um, big problem there in Plymouth, and I think Chris was very, uh, very eloquent speaking about it there. The bells have been ringing across East Devon as a campaign goes on to save a, save a wing of Seton um, Community Hospital. Brad, you've been listening to the bells and um, taking the temperature of the, of the campaign. I have, yes. Obviously, we spoke about this issue on the previous podcast, um, <clears throat> but the Seaton community has kept up its pressure on the NHS to try and ensure a wing of its community hospital is not demolished. Um, Reverend Barry Brewer, an Exeter diocese clergyman, got in touch with me because he was ringing the bells at his church in a uh, funereal style to express the mourning of the potential loss of the hospital. And you can hear a little clip of that now. So he described this as chiming a warning, that's how he put it, um, about the potential loss of this wing of the hospital. Um, now, the Devon NHS has said it has to pay £300,000 a year in rent and other charges to NHS Property Services, which is the landlord, um, for the void space in Seaton Hospital. But campaigners are hoping that a community rate of rent can be agreed. The aim here would be for community health groups to launch a health hub, a health hub in the space, which would feature, among other, among other things, services aimed at dementia patients which are seen as particularly important given the age demographic of the area. Um, Dr Sarah Wollaston who's chair of NHS Devon actually wrote to me to outline that the organisation has spent £1.5 million since 2017 which she described as poor use of taxpayers money. She said many people have said we shouldn't have wasted this money on the vacant space in recent years and I think that's understandable criticism and to a large extent I agree. She added that NHS Devon was trying to put a renewed focus on tackling waste and they wanted to stop paying so much for empty space. Um, Sarah Wollaston added that NHS Devon was in the process of handing the space back, a decision made in September, but that negotiations were ongoing with the landlord, NHS Property Services, and that the handback process was not straightforward. She added that ideally a solution would be found that involves a positive future for the former ward, but the NHS in Devon is under significant pressure to tackle its financial challenges and any possible solutions need to be found as quickly as possible, mindful of the ongoing and significant financial burden this empty space places on our finances. So it really is a battle still between the community and um, what the NHS sees as a logical way to save itself some money. Um, campaigners went to Devon County Council last week as well to urge them to chip in with their pressure on the NHS, so this is still, this is still rolling on. See how it goes. Thank you, Brad. Uh, my turn for uh, famous people anecdote. It was actually talking to the Archbishop of Canterbury that got me thinking about this. I thought, well, you know, let's see, you know, he has to be the actual most famous person. He is the head of the Anglican Church. They don't get much more famous than the Archbishop of Canterbury. But I have done, you have these things when you're a reporter, when the editor sends you out and, and you have to front up a politician and sound as if you know what you're talking about. So I, I, John Major I got when he was Prime Minister, uh, Paddy Ashdown, John Prescott. Ken Livingstone was a particularly good interview. I really enjoyed talking to Ken Livingstone. Don't think I actually got any stories out of him, but I did enjoy chatting to him. That was in the old Festival Theatre at Paynton at one time. Nigel Mansell I spoke to just after he'd become world champion. He was yeah. really nice, by the way. He has a reputation for being, you know, a, a bit of an irascible character, but he absolutely wasn't when I spoke to him. He's a lovely fella. Mm, so, I bet uh, you were the envy of a lot of people by speaking to him. Yeah, well, it was one of those jobs in the office. He was down at Dartmouth at the golf club, which he used to have a business interest mm. in. And it was only a couple of days after he'd won the championship back in 92. 
And the editor said, does anybody want to go and talk to Nigel Mansell? Yep, I'll go. I had the car keys in my hand before he'd finished the sentence. So <laughs> I went off and did that. But possibly the, the best one, you're a bit of a Strictly fan, aren't you, Ali? Oh, yeah. Watch it in and out. I met Angela Rippon a couple of times because oh, yeah. she obviously, she's local and she had, an, it, it, yeah. mm. she had an involvement um, with a dance school in Torquay and she was absolutely charming, yeah. absolutely lovely. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my contribution. You've got some good news, Ali, on trains. I have, but I was just thinking we should get Angela on the podcast. We should. She could talk about behind the scenes. She strictly. could, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk about trains, which we love on the podcast. Um, so great news in Oakhampton, success of the Dartmoor line, which is now two years old with 550,000 train journeys in that time. Um, celebrations were held this week where all the great and the good came out to recognise the importance of rail returning to the town after nearly 50 years. Passenger services to Exeter were reinstated in November 2021 with £40 million from the government for the first project under its Restoring Your Railways programme. And now this programme is about bringing back lost lines that were axed in the beaching era. And for Oakhampton, the success has been twofold because commuter students and shoppers can now get to Exeter for all their needs, uh, all the city facilities easily and in a greener way, um, and tourists can now access the Dartmoor town of Oakhampton, a local countryside for walks, and it's really popular for that reason. Uh, Mayor of West Devon, Councillor Lynn Daniel, Mayor of Oakhampton, Councillor Allenton Fisher, and Chairman of the Devon and Cornwall Rail Partnership, Richard Burningham, shared with me their excitement about the line. I think it's very significant. It really shows the work and the effort and the persistence of the people that have worked for at least 10 years to try and get this line in place. And I'm so proud. I'm so proud to be here on this second anniversary as well. So it's really good. And it's changed the town. I've been on this train 30, 40 times. And the last year, every time I'm on it, it's full. In fact, they do give me a seat because I probably look a bit older than them. But uh, when we came back from Exeter a week ago, there was f full of students and the seats, you know, they, they had to give up seats for us because it, it was so packed. It really has changed. And of course, it's going to make a lot of difference when we have the second station, which is going to be called Oakhampton Parkway. And that's nearer the A30 with plenty of parking because that's one of the problems we have up here with the station. It's quite difficult to park. Yep, it's a fabulous day for Oakhampton and who can believe it's two years ago now since we all arrived here on, the, on that Saturday morning for the first train for, what was it, 49 years. Um, so fabulous, it's been a great success. And that's the key thing. It's not just about, isn't it lovely to get Oakhampton back on the railway, but the important thing is, is that... This railway has proved that it is of value and of use to local people. And that's the absolute key thing. Railways are about getting people from A to B and being useful to people in their lives. And this line is proving that in spades, which is great, with more than 550,000 journeys in the first two years, way, way in advance of what the projections were. Well, Matt Barnes from Great, Great Western Railway um, tells us the story of how Oakhampton got its railway back with a lot of persistence and tenacity. Oakhampton was um, a very unusual project, the way the Dartmoor line came about. Obviously, you had the, the private private railway, they went into administration, and what you had is a, a, the stars aligning in 2020, whereby the government had this funding stream, restoring your railway, and we had a line where the private owners of the line um, actually were keen to sell it to the rail industry. The, the private operators had gone into administration. So, so... 
we had this moment when the stars aligned. Unfortunately, it happened at the same time as COVID. So a small band of us, myself leading for Great Western, a guy, Christian Irwin from Network Crowd, we, we sort of set out to seize that moment, to seize it in such a convincing way that other projects could follow us. Um, so we, um, in the autumn of 2020, we submitted our business case. I wrote the strategic case, all the narrative, and, and we had quite the job to persuade the Treasury. It's not easy to go and persuade the Treasury at the height of a pandemic that actually people are going to use the train to a little town in Devon. Um, but actually, um, you know, we were able to do that, and that we were able to do that through a combination of kind of tenaciously keeping saying the same things, the consensus that existed locally and the, that, that consensus between um, all the local partners from Oak Row to Devon County Council and everyone in between was, was absolutely central. And, and basically just keeping, telling, you know, that clear vision about how it could be successful. But then having, having of course, convinced the Treasury, which was no sm small feat, we then had the small job of how do you reopen the line in next to no time? So seven months and 28 days it took us from the point the funding was announced in, in um, March 2021 to the VIP opening on the 17th of November and public opening on the 20th of November. And um, that period of time, we had to, um, again, that, that, that tenacity, the, the Royal Marines have a phrase, improvise, adapt and overcome. We had to just find a way. We had a period in the autumn two years ago where we had all sorts of challenges where we couldn't cut vegetation down. We had construction works ongoing, but we had driver training going on at the same time while we had construction going on, which was meant constant chopping and changing every day, a really, really dedicated band of people on our side in Great Western, fantastic people who were literally just finding a way to overcome every problem. So, um, yeah, it's quite something. Well, it's great news up there. Um, and also, we're hoping that the um, railway will be coming back to Tavistock. Um, well, we know that the money's been set aside from um, the redirection of the HS2 money, um, but campaigners have been slightly sceptical. Um, on the Tavistock to Burlston line coming back until they actually had it in writing. Now they do. Richard Birmingham explains. We have now, and, and hats off to Geoffrey Cox MP for getting this commitment, we have now the firmest commitment we have ever had from the government to returning the railway to Tavistock. The letter that he was sent by the rail minister that says that the government commits to funding the reopening uh, to um, completion to yeah to delivery um, subject to updated business cases I mean Tavistock closed in 1968 and probably in 1969 people started talking about returning the railway to Tavistock I've been involved with the case for Tavistock since 1998 this is the furthest and strongest commitment we've ever had from anybody to getting it done so that letter, that letter will be, we will be using, all of us will be using that letter for however long it takes. Because also you can bet your bottom dollar, Devon County Council are leading the project. They're not going to trip up on updating the business cases. All that side is going to be completely done, dusted, um, I's dotted, T's crossed. And of course we have the great success of this, proving that... Um, a line reopened to a, a rural West Devon town uh, can be and is a huge success. It's great news for rail enthusiasts everywhere. Good story, that one. I like that one.
Now, the last time we were here, we told the story of a sacred headdress which was taken from the Blackfoot Nation in northwest Canada 150 years ago by a Devon man and was on display at the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter until representatives from the Blackfoot people explained what it actually was. Uh, it was so sacred that it's been taken off public display and now it's going home. Here's Exeter City Council's Deputy Leader Laura Wright, who serves on the Museum Trust and is the portfolio holder for culture, explaining what will happen to the headdress now. It will be used again and sort of returned to, to its place of origin, but also returned to its place of, of cultural use. So that is a really important point. So there's no written sort of evidence provenance really about how it was required um, acquired other yeah. than who who it was who had ownership of it when it was brought back to england um and it was bequeathed to the museum um by the wife of edgar judney yeah. in 1920 so he was lieutenant governor of the northwest territories and a member of parliament for canada we don't really know how he became in possession of it but we can absolutely guess that it, it was taken rather than given because sometimes gifts were given but never anything that was sacred and a ceremonial artifact that would never have been gifted to anybody else so we know that it would have actually been taken so to be able to return it is is really important so we said on the last Devoncast that maybe this was a pointer towards how we learn about history in the future, uh, not taking treasured artefacts from their rightful owners to show them off, but uh, finding other ways to learn about them. Absolutely, Guy, and that's that's the key importance. So what we need to do in, in the RAM is, that we, you know, these days we can have brilliant photographs taken of things, if appropriate. If, if not, then pictures drawn and... Uh, not a retelling of the history, but a more comprehensive telling mm. of history than has happened previously in some ways. But th this in itself is a story that will be great for people in the realm to read yeah. about repatriation and, and obviously the, you know, the detriment to us of, of the loss of it. It's going to be mitigated anyway through availability of digital records at the RAM. Yeah. Um, and again, that's that has to be subject to the Six Seeker Nations agreement about whether it's photographs or, or pictures, but also lots of information that people can read. So you're absolutely right. We don't actually need that headdress to be in a glass cabinet for people to say, look at that headdress. Um, it creates a, the opportunity for a much broader, comprehensive telling of, of the history of uh, colonialisation, the effects on Indigenous people. And that, to me, is a story that wasn't told in my education mm. when I was younger, all those many years ago. And I'm really keen for this generation to actually get a broader view now, a recent report said that the Royal Albert Memorial Museum brings in £5 million to the city's economy every year. Councillor Wright thinks that might even be an underestimate and explains why arts and culture are so important to Exeter. Very often people might sort of think of culture, museums, are fluffy add-on to life, that you do it if you can afford it or it's not important, it's not essential to daily life. But it really, really is not just for our own sense of well-being, purpose, understanding of past, present, future, etc. 
and enjoyment and entertainment as well, mm. but also for the value that it brings to the economy. So one of the things that we're really proud of about RAM is it offers its free entry. It's supported very heavily by by the council. It's even though people aren't paying to go to the RAM, they will stay in the city and go and do something else. They'll go off for lunch or uh, they might go for a swim in our leisure centre, in our um, wonderful passive house, swimming pool. Or visit a gym, they might stay and go to one of our theatres in the evening. So it's that benefit to the economy that is really, really important and, and doesn't always get flagged up because uh, a cultural offer, if you like, in the city is part of the economy. Um, but like I say, tends to sometimes be looked at as a, a fluffy a fluffy add-on. And um, having worked in the business in the years, it, it isn't. Do you think we're a fluffy add-on? <laughs> yeah. I think we probably are. Thank you very much there to uh, Laura Wright, uh, Exeter City Council's Deputy Leader, uh, for chatting to us there. That's it. We've podcasted. This has been the Devoncast. Um, tell all your friends about it. You can find it on the Radio X website and all the places that you normally get your podcasts. Uh, and we'll be back very, very shortly. In the meantime, it's good night from me and it's good night from them. Good night. Good night. Devoncast from Radio X. 